0: This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis helped make critical race theory into public enemy number one for his political base. And after less than a year in force, his state's Stop Woke Act is already stifling academic speech. How has Florida education been affected and how can scholars fight back? Race is just such a, a,
1: it's an interesting topic, but it's also so key to everything that's happening in our society and around the world in
0: many places now. Teaching race without critical race theory. Coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. In recent years, right-wing politicians transformed critical race theory from a niche academic pursuit to a racial boogeyman across the nation, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has made that state the capital of this effort. His Stop Woke Act, passed by the Florida legislature, went into effect last year, and despite court challenges, it's already stopping academics at all levels from teaching about the roots of systematic racism and its consequences. One of those educators is Jonathan Cox. He teaches sociology at the University of Central Florida. And he used to teach elements of critical race theory, but has ended certain courses out of fear that they would conflict with the law. He discusses concerns for a recent article in ProPublica, and he joins us now. Professor Cox, welcome to a word.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Full disclosure, as everybody knows, I am a professor at Morgan State University. So anytime I get a chance to talk to an academic about these kinds of issues, I'm always excited. I'm just going to start with this. How long have you been at the University of Central Florida? And what was sort of your journey to that school? Because whether you're tenured or not tenured, whether this is a contract job, all of those things kind of have an effect. So what was sort of your journey to to where you are now? How long have you been there?
1: Sure. So I've been at UCF uh, for about six years. This is my sixth year, kind of in the middle of it now. Um, And so I mean, getting here was (laughs) kind of an interesting and and long process. And so short story, start off at Hampton University, actually, you know, did my schooling there in education. So I was certified to teach K through 12. Education is a space that I really enjoy being in. Uh, But after that kind of decided, you know what, I I like the the collegiate environment a little bit better than K through 12. And so pursued a career in student affairs, actually. So for several years after getting a master's, I worked in student affairs, in multicultural affairs specifically, right? So that was kind of my first entree into like diversity issues, racism, racial inequalities and things like that. Um, and through that job, kind of learned that I wanted to try, you know, being a professor, seeing what that was like. And so I ended up doing my uh, PhD in sociology at the University of Maryland. Just in my general focus there, one of the things that I really picked up was critical race theory, actually. That's one of the areas of specialty that I had while I was getting my PhD, because I think that race is just such a, a it's an interesting topic, but it's also so key to everything that's happening in our society and around the world in many places now. And so I really wanted to study that to help kind of eradicate racism. Right. And so then that eventually led me to this job at UCF. Um, This is my first position as a full time faculty member. So being on that side of things in higher ed, they hired me in here in part really to teach these courses on race to, to do things on racial inequalities. Um, and so, uh, you know, I've created courses while I've been here. I've been teaching, you know, several courses that are on race and racism specifically. I've even actually even taught a grad course specifically on critical race theory. Um, and so that's kind of what really got me here is just the desire to want to do something about uh, racism,
0: eradicate it, and help us get to a better place in society. You told ProPublica that when you first became aware of the anti-CRT legislation in Florida. You didn't think it was necessarily going to change much about what you taught. What started to happen that made you change your mind?
1: So I think for me and many of my colleagues, right, was uh, when the the proposed laws um, started being tailored for higher education. Right at first, most of the legislation you kind of see around the country developing um, was really geared toward K through twelve. Uh, right, particularly kind of this anti CRT critical race theory. Teaching in K through 12, which doesn't happen, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But then they said, we're going to go after higher ed too. Right. And so then all of a sudden it becomes an issue of right. This is actually where these courses are taught. This is where we do get into these theories and others that talk about systemic inequalities and racism. And so this is like my bread and butter. Right. This is literally what I am paid to do. Right. And it's not to indoctrinate. It's not to bring (laughs) just to bring my opinions. I don't just get up and pontificate in front of folks. Right. I use you know actual empirical evidence and data that's existed for decades at this point. Once that started happening, all of a sudden it became much more uh, like central to what was happening with my everyday role as a professor.
0: What are the classes that you said, I'm not going to teach these this fall. I don't want to get in trouble. What were those classes and what was the response when you said I got to pull these?
1: I was scheduled to teach two of the main courses I teach for undergrad, Um, or one that's Race and Ethnicity. It's kind of like a broad scale, generalized course on race and racism in the United States um, and how we understand racial inequalities through a sociological lens. And then the other course is one that I created specifically when I got here, which is called Race and Social Media. And so that course, we really, I I thought it was really timely because we look at how race and racism become embedded in the technology that is social media, right? So we bring our ideas of race and racism into those spaces. Um, And so what does that look like? And so those two courses I was scheduled to teach, um, I teach them on a very regular basis, both of them several times at this point. And again, because of the law, just kind of decided, you know what, this, this isn't worth it. And so it was a conversation that was had. Um, in my department. So thankfully, my department is really, really supportive, right? My department chair was supportive of this, the other leadership, um, they kind of came to me as well as others in the department that were teaching some of these courses that were more directly affected by the law and asked us, what do you want to do? Do you want to cancel them? Do you want to keep teaching them? We don't want to make you do something knowing that this law is, you know, could have some really negative effects for you. And so after a bunch of you know, back and forth in my head and agonizing, because I really did not want to not teach them, um, I just decided that I needed to scrap them for that semester and kind of wait to see what was going to be happening with this law. So thankfully, very supportive response from my department. I haven't heard anything negative from the university writ large about it either. I think they understand, right? It's very unfortunate, but these laws kind of bootstrap them as well. So yeah, I think it's been supportive overall.
0: We're gonna take a short break. We come back more on the chilling effect of an anti-CRT law in Florida's universities. This is A Word with Jason Johnson, stay tuned.
1: This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row, all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with 0-60 to speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely.
0: This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about Florida's anti-CRT law with Professor Jonathan Cox. For people to understand, the Anti-Woke Act is an anti-CRT law It moved from sort of applying to elementary schools to colleges. Why does that specifically make teaching classes difficult? What can happen to you? What can happen to the university? What's the process that you were concerned about that made you drop these classes? A part of it is that the
1: process itself is very ambiguously worded. You're kind of unsure what specifically is going to happen, although they are very clear that, let's say... I was teaching something that was against the law. Somebody brought it up and there would be an investigation of some kind by the university. And then based on that investigation, they would need to take uh, action. Right now, the action is undefined, but they're highly incentivized to do something about it, uh, which could lead to the termination of a job. Right. They, they talked about that. Eventually it could lead to that. Um, So there's that individual consequence for the professors um, like myself, Uh, but then there's also the institution is incentivized to do something because they could lose significant amounts of public funding from the state. We're talking about millions of dollars. It's not like a small amount. Again, the ambiguousness of the the law was something we wanted to see how it would work out. But effectively, if the university is found to be in violation of this law or any professor or person working at the university is found in violation. if it comes t- down to the end of the investigation and they feel like I guess maybe not enough was done, or it, it's that that's where the unclear part was, the university is going to lose a lot of money, right? A whole lot of money, and, and so that then becomes really hard for them in terms of how they're going to protect us. What are they going to do? What are their what are their guidance that comes out as a result of this? Right? It becomes really difficult for everybody.
0: And here's the thing: I, I want people to really understand about this when you talk about the ambiguous nature of the process. In order for a university or a professor or a department to come under investigation, the complaint doesn't have to come from a student, right? Some random person can just be searching through the websites on a campus, see your syllabus and report you to the state overseers or whatever. So you are potentially under attack from anybody in or out of the state of Florida, correct?
1: Yes. And that was a, an, another thing that really played into my particular decision, right, is because in my experience, the students in my classes, whether they, you know, have more conservative or liberal or whatever views, they have rarely said anything negative about what they're learning. Right. They often actually express you know surprise that they haven't learned it before. And so I wasn't really worried about what was going to happen in the classes, right? Most people have to sign up for it anyway. They're probably not going to sign up for a class with race in the name unless they want to talk about that stuff. But the other people, right, anybody else outside of the university, outside the class could theoretically bring that up. And that's really what scared me is because it connects to a lot of the ways that we see other things playing out in our society where, you know, they kind of weaponize others or other people that are outside of whatever sphere it is to be able to then have influence over what's happening
0: and along those lines and you know especially because you teach about you know sort of racism in social media i think all professors at this point and certainly all professors of color know that sort of our purview is now outside of the classroom it's not just what you could say in class but maybe something that you tweeted or something that you put on instagram or something that you put on facebook or tiktok to your knowledge would this anti woke law hold you or your university accountable if you said something on Twitter that they thought was CRT? Would that, too, also potentially affect you in the university?
1: Yeah, it definitely could have an impact. Something that I might say outside of the university, like on social media or something, may not in and it of itself be the thing that creates the problem, but it could lead to it, right? That could be what spurs somebody to look into stuff, or it spurs some type of investigation, or just puts a spotlight on on you, right? And so, I mean, for me, right, I'm the, the only Black person in my department. I'm one of only a couple of untenured faculty in our department as of now. And so, like, that that could be a big problem, right? People coming after individual professors who maybe don't have as much protections as other. And as you were saying, the people of color, scholars of color, are, are even more likely to have this happen to them.
0: I'm glad that you mentioned tenure, because I think that's an important part of what we see going on here in the state of Florida, in Tennessee, and other places that have passed this kind of legislation. In 1970, 80% of all university faculty were tenured. By 2021, 75% of all university faculty in America were adjuncts. So basically, the amount of protection that academics have has disappeared over the last 40 years or so, which makes what DeSantis is doing possible. What role does the large number of you guys not having tenure, I mean, you're in year six and aren't tenured, right? What role does not having tenure play in universities and individual faculty members being afraid of this kind of law?
1: It's huge, right? I don't think we can overstate the the significance of being unprotected, right? Because those are the people that really have the most trouble. Right. We know that based on these laws, even tenure people could have stuff happen to them, but they have a really significant level of protection. And so the fact that as you're saying, majority of, of uh educators are in untenured positions or non-tenured track positions. Um, right now, currently, I mean only like five of tenure faculty are Black, right? So we're looking at very small numbers anyway. We're much more likely to be in those, you know, kind of year-to-year contractual positions. Um, and so that becomes huge if you don't have any type of protections. I mean, somewhere he- like here in Florida, for example, um, where we are unionized, right? So unless you're paying into the faculty union, then you're only going to have a certain level of protection. And some people, if they're not professors of a certain type, aren't even able, you know, to be in the union, right? This law applies to staff as well. Right. So this is something that go, that extends beyond just uh, what's happening in the classrooms. Right. That's just a big part of it. And so this is it's huge that a lot of us just don't have that type of protection that's going to prevent something like this from you know, killing our, our careers or just, you know, really making it difficult to live for a particular
0: amount of time. One of the things that you focus on in your scholarship is this idea of colorblind racism. Tell us a little bit about that and how colorblind racism applies to this. Yeah,
1: so I mean, colorblindness, um, when we think about colorblindness or colorblind racism, right? that's really the predominant racial ideology that we've had uh, post-civil rights, right? So it's really this, it came out of this misreading, intentional misreading of uh, Martin Luther King's, Dr. King's words, right, you know, the, that famous speech about black children and white children being able to play together, et cetera. That's what they took, and then they kind of used it then to suggest, well, we shouldn't talk about race anymore because race is no longer a significant factor, right? We passed all these these laws that make make uh racism uh illegal, therefore it does it must not happen because it's illegal. That's obviously we know that's not the case. What this does then is just really kind of obscures the level to which race and racism are significant factors, are ongoing significant factors in the lives of people of color. Right. We see so many different racial disparities that continue to exist. We see because of systemic and structural racism that even if individuals don't have you know, your negative racist attitudes, right, that the structure is going to continue itself. I mean, so colorblindness is just a way to ignore that, right? To continue the perpetuation of um, privileges for certain groups uh, in terms of race, that's white Americans in the United States, um, as well as the subordination of others, right? The, the, so we just have see a lack of privileges and a lack of opportunities that exist because of this. But if we can say race doesn't matter, then all of a sudden, then we can get rid of laws that help alleviate some of these racial uh, racial inequalities that we continue to see. So when we think about like affirmative action, right, we can all of a sudden say that's no longer necessary. It's no longer necessary for us to go out and, and think intentionally about who is hired in a particular firm or who has access to education or healthcare in certain ways. COVID-19 really brought that out for a lot of people. Right. It really highlighted the continuing inequities that we see. And so it just using colorblindness allows people to kind of get around that and say, you know, what, it's just an individual problem. Change your attitude. I don't know why you're not you're not succeeding when everybody else did. Look at Barack Obama. He was a black president. We got there. Right. We we have arrived.
0: We're going to take a short break when we come back more about the chilling effect of Florida's anti-CRT legislation in the classroom. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to a Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about Florida's Stop Woke Act with Professor Jonathan Cox. You delivered a presentation at the Southern Sociological Society last year entitled On Shaky Ground, Black Authenticity at Predominantly White Institutions. We often call them PWIs. How does this anti-CRT law affect how authentic you and other Black people, students, faculty, or staff feel like you can be on campus. Yeah, it's it's
1: significant, right? Because effectively, uh, this law is outlawing, it's making illegal the ability to even talk about many of the experiences that I have, that you have, right? As, a, as another Black professor, that our students who are Black, or our students who are uh, uh, Latine, Latinx, that are Asian American, right? It, it effectively makes it really difficult for us to talk about these things in terms that we can back up with, again, empirical evidence that has we have had that has existed for decades, right? We can't talk about systemic racism. We can't talk about the fact that colorblindness is a form of racism that then allows us not to have these continued discussions. And so then it just becomes more difficult to be yourself because a part of who you are, unfortunately, are the experiences that you have due to racism, right, or due to uh, the color of your skin and how people are treating you and how the systems play out in your favor or against you.
0: You've been very brave in in that interview with ProPublica, especially as a faculty member who is not tenured. Have you experienced any backlash? Have you gotten nasty phone calls, letters, emails? What, if any, backlash have you faced for just coming forward and saying, hey, this is a problem?
1: thus far i haven't received a lot of negative pushback um i've actually received a lot more support even just people who are out there just kind of reaching out um you know sending me an email or something saying like hey i heard i read the story or this and i'm in support of you i'm a professor myself where i was before or i'm just a general citizen um i have seen a couple instances of people you know kind of the, the internet trolls people leaving negative comments on some of my youtube videos for instance or some of the mini lectures that i put online um or some of the things that I'll share, um, you know, I might get some negative comments responding to me on Twitter. You know, kind of the same stuff you see with with most people who respond to that. I am in Florida, and there, <laughs> there's a reason they talk about Florida man. Um, and so I am absolutely vigilant. We'll say right now, I'm not. I wouldn't say concerned, but I am definitely aware and vigilant about what
0: could happen. What is the current state of the pushback against the anti woke act? Is there any hope? that this could be adjusted um, in a way that's not going to make it difficult for you and many other people to just do their job.
1: Yeah, so there are lots of people that are fighting against this right now. Even at the UCF, the president of our faculty union has started a case against these laws, right, to to have them uh, stricken or taken down. I know there are other people. I believe I spoke with somebody at the ACLU last year, a little bit about some lawsuits that they're trying to put in place because we know that we have to, you know, kind of first attack this at the law level. And so the injunction against it right now is great. I know other people are continuing to fight against this, Um, and lots of people are just speaking out, right, particularly professors and students, right. One of the things that I liked about the article that was highlighted was the ways in which the students at FAMU, right, Florida A&M, another historically Black university, they're fighting against this and other, right, historical marginalization for them. And so we see a lot of people pushing back, which I think is positive, right? We need to continue to see that happen so this law can hopefully be done away with.
0: Jonathan Cox is a professor of sociology at the University of Central Florida. Thank you so much for joining us on A Word. Best of luck, man. And after six years, they need to give you tenure. (laughs)
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate you making space and and bringing me on here. It was a a great opportunity.
0: And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at Slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word.